Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning fully dependent on your grace. We need your grace to save us. We need your grace to correct our vision and turn our wandering hearts back to you. We need your grace to teach us, to cleanse us, to change us, to fill us with power and strength to continue growing and to follow you. So Lord, we ask for that grace now. I'm reminded of those two disciples at the end of Luke. As you opened their hearts to understand the scriptures, they said that their hearts burned within them. Lord, that's what we're asking for this morning, that your word would bring about uh, your intended effect in our hearts, that you'd kindle a fire of love for you and love for your word, that you'd kindle a fire of passion to see your glory magnified, to see your purposes accomplished, and that every fiber of our being would be brought into submission to you. Lord, that's what we're asking for. We believe that this is what you do by your spirit and through your word. So we ask it in faith and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today brings us to the end of our series through the book of Jonah. It's a familiar story for many. God tells a prophet to go, and he says no. He runs, and so God pursues him. He sends a storm. He sends a fish. He's merciful, and he brings Jonah back to a place of obedience. He brings him to the breaking point so that Jonah submits his will. Last week in chapter 3, we saw sort of a wide-angle lens view of what God was doing as God dealt with a whole city, Nineveh. And as Jonah preached a very simple but very biblical message, the judgment of God upon sin, the whole city responded and repented, and God averted his anger. So chapter 3 was a wide-angle lens. Chapter 4 now zooms in up close to show us a conversation between God and his servant. We already saw how God has brought Jonah to real repentance in chapter 2. But we talked about how it was only the beginning of repentance. In Jonah chapter 2, we see Jonah praying from the belly of the fish, asking for God's mercy, and then declaring with gratitude that salvation belongs to the Lord. And because of that, he vowed obedience. And he kept that vow. He made good on his promise. He went to Nineveh and preached as God said. So is God done with Jonah is the question. He got Jonah to obey, to do what he wanted him to do. But God wants to do more. You see, at this point, God has already dealt with the act of disobedience in his severe discipline, but gracious discipline of Jonah. So he's dealt with the bad fruit, but there are deep roots that still need to be pulled out. The underlying issues of the heart that caused Jonah to disobey in the first place still need to be exposed and confronted. So God's aim is not just to use Jonah to reach Nineveh, but get this, God wants to use the redemption of Nineveh to reach Jonah. What we find here in Jonah 4 is God doing spiritual heart surgery. He's gently exposing Jonah's sin so that real change can happen, so that Jonah will come to share the heart that God has for the nations. God's purpose for his people, then and now, is always to change us into who we are meant to be, to change us for the sake of his glory, to be less like ourselves and more like him, specifically to conform us to the image of Christ. Paul says in Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is God's eternal purpose for you if you're a believer. He chose you to make you like his son, Jesus Christ. And as 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, this change, this process of change happens when we come face to face with God. 
And that's what happens to Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, face to face with his maker and his savior. And the change that God intends is always meant to be comprehensive. It's not just about our external behavior, but God is concerned with our character. Not just about our actions, God cares about even our attitudes. He's not satisfied with merely external obedience. God wants the very thoughts and affections and desires of your heart and my heart to reflect his. So in this final chapter, I want to look at how God pursues and purifies his prophet. And in doing so, I think we'll learn something about how God works in our hearts today as well. Let's begin. We'll read verses 1 through 4 together. After God averts his anger and shows mercy to Nineveh, verse 1 of chapter 4 says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? What we find here is an important lesson, that God uses disappointment to expose our hearts. It's point one if you're a note taker this morning. Several things that God uses to change our hearts, to bring about this process of change. And as we observe Jonah's life, we see that God can use massive disappointment. Jonah's preaching had brought about widespread repentance in Nineveh. And in response, it's it's this irony that at the end of chapter 3, we saw that God's anger abates and Jonah's anger increases. Now, think about it. The redemption that just happened in Nineveh is in keeping with God's purpose as was stated in the Abrahamic covenant. Go all the way back to Genesis, chapter 12. God had told Abraham that he was going to bless him and make a great nation out of him and bless his descendants. And all of the Israelites loved that part. Jonah, as a make Israel great again hat wearer, loved that first part of the Abrahamic covenant. But what about the last phrase? God had promised also that through Abraham and his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The nation of Israel, in a sense, had a missionary purpose. Carrie read for us this morning already from Psalm 96. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. That's what Jonah's been doing. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Why? For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And God desires the praise of the Ninevites. For them to see his mercy and to glorify him for his work of salvation. Israel has a missionary purpose. And though they often failed at this, Jonah's preaching was a unique moment of astounding success. God's purposes are being brought to pass. The the blessing of Abraham is being shared with the nations. God's glory is being magnified among the peoples. Jonah, as a representative of the nation Israel, has become a channel of blessing to those who are far off from the covenant. And you would think that this would have caused him great rejoicing, but it does not. Instead, he becomes very angry. If you ignore that chapter division, the big, bold number four in your Bible that's not in the original text, 
you can see that ironic contrast where God's anger relents and Jonah's anger flares up. So just like chapter 2, again, Jonah prays. But this prayer is a very different prayer than chapter 2. In chapter 2, he calls out for mercy and he praises God for saving him and he vows obedience. But in chapter 4, he says, I knew you were going to do this and I wish I was dead. In this prayer, Jonah's motive for running away in chapter 1 now becomes clear. He says this in verse 2, This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see, Jonah was afraid that something like this might happen. And that's why he didn't want to go preach. These words show us that Jonah was a theologically sharp Jew. In fact, this quotation, this statement that he makes is actually a quotation from the Old Testament law, from the Pentateuch, Exodus chapter 34. Jonah knew the story where God requested to see, or where Moses rather, requested to see God. And God told, told Moses, I'll put you in this cleft of the rock, and I'll turn my back to you, and I'll let my glory pass before you. And as God passes before Moses, he gives us the classic uh, revelation and expression of his divine name. I am the Lord, Yahweh. And I am merciful and gracious and slow to anger. You see these same phrases, these same words being stated. This is the classic manifesto that describes to us the very character and nature of God. And Jonah knows it. Jonah knows it. His problem is not a doctrinal deficiency. The problem is this. That Jonah didn't like what he knew to be true about God. That was the root issue. The running away in chapter 1 was bad fruit, but this is the bad root, that Jonah knows something about God and he's not okay with it. He resents it. He disagrees with it. His resistance towards God's tendency to be merciful, his hunch that God's sovereign choice would be mercy to Nineveh, that is what caused him to run away and disobey God's command to arise and go and call out against the city. Now, you have to ask the question, why did Jonah feel so strongly about this? Why was he so resistant to God showing mercy to these people? Well, you have to remember, Jonah had once been part of a great restoration in Israel. He'd prophesied that their borders would be restored and expanded and that God would restore their their political stability and their military success. And it had happened. It had come true. But now Jonah is personally responsible for helping Israel's enemy. Their future conquerors. Jonah knew the prophecy that Assyria was destined to rise and overthrow the northern ten tribes and take them away into exile. And Jonah has just helped them to escape God's wrath. And he's upset that a people that he perceives to be more wicked than Israel are being spared, while Israel is destined for judgment at their hands. And this is just too much for him. He feels like an accomplice to the destruction of Israel. And feels like God has coerced him into being an instrument in their redemption. And this is at the heart of his distress. And so here's the shocking situation that we find in verses 1 through 4. That the mercy of God, the fact that he is gracious and slow to anger and relents from disaster. That he abounds in steadfast love. Something that in other places is the cause for worship and gratitude. Here is the source of Jonah's complaint. 
And he's so upset that he asks God to take his life. He says, if this is the way the world works, and if this is the kind of God you are, and if this is how you're going to run things, I don't even want to be a part of it. I can't take this anymore, and I would rather be dead. So he asks God to take his life. And God answers with uh, no. He does not... He does not take Jonah's life. Chapter 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? His no comes in the form of a question. Do you do well to be angry? You know, God is infinitely wisdom, and he always knows exactly how to deal with us as his children. And God has a history of asking questions to wayward children. In the garden, he came searching for a guilty Adam. And he said, Adam, where are you? He asked an exasperated Job, Job, where were you when I formed the universe and everything in it? He said to a fearful Moses, Moses, who made man's mouth? You know, every time God asks a question to his servants, he's not looking for an answer. It's not like he doesn't know. These are rhetorical questions. These questions are not meant to somehow gather new information because God's trying to figure something out. The questions are meant to cause us to reconsider the truth and to consider our actions and our responses in light of what is actually true. Adam needed to reflect on the cause of his guilt. Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? You did what I told you not to do, didn't you? Moses, I made your mouth, and don't you think that if I tell you to speak to Pharaoh, I'll give you the skill and the words to do what I'm asking? Job, if I have the power and the wisdom to form the universe and the creation and everything in it, don't you think I know what's best for your life? So God's question to Jonah is this, is your anger, Jonah, really appropriate? And are you sure you want to do this, to accuse me of being in the wrong? And I think this question, again, shows a remarkable mercy to Jonah because his anger is not just distasteful. It's borderline blasphemous. You, you, you might wonder, as we're reading through the, the book, why does God put up with this guy? And why does he put up with you and me? Because he doesn't have to. And you might wonder, why is he still after Jonah? He has other prophets. Let this guy go and make his bed and lie in it and Use Joel and Isaiah and Nahum and these other guys. You've got plenty of other prophets at your disposal. Because God already got what he wanted, right? Nineveh was saved. He got Jonah to obey. But God wants more than that. He doesn't just want Jonah to do something for him. He wants Jonah. And he wants not only his obedience, but also his heart. And that's what he's getting after right here. He's used this disappointment and he's, and he's bringing things about to expose the things that are going on in Jonah's heart. So God pursues him once again. Instead of sending the storm, he's asking questions. And he asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? But notice that Jonah, in verse 5, refuses to talk. He says, I'm not going to take the bait. I know better than to get into an argument with God. So instead, he walks away, and he storms out of the city. Jonah was feeling the weight of disappointment. He wanted Nineveh to be crushed. But instead, they repented and God relented. And this disappointment had exposed the root issue. He knew what God was like and was not okay with that. He opposed God. He opposed God's character. And he opposed God's sovereign will, his decisions. You know, often the disappointments that you and I face do the same thing. They expose something in our hearts. When we don't get something that we want 
or when we get something that we don't want, this often brings the issues in our heart bubbling to the surface. And it's then and there that God comes to us and meets us to do surgery, to cut away the things and challenge the things that do not reflect Christ. God uses such disappointments to expose the true desires and the idolatries in our hearts so that they can be dealt with. God uses disappointments. But secondly, God also uses circumstances to apply pressure to our hearts. We see this in verses 5 through 8. Jonah doesn't take the bait. He does not answer God's rhetorical question. Instead, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah chooses not to answer God, and still God pursues him. Jonah goes out to watch the city from a safe distance. He has lingering hopes, I think, that maybe God will still send judgment. Maybe their repentance was momentary and it'll wear off and God will still judge. Or maybe, you know, maybe God will still send judgment for some other reason. You know, the king of Nineveh had declared, as we saw at the end of chapter 3, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may, may not perish. But Jonah had hoped against hope. Who knows? Perhaps God may still wipe them off the map. I'm going to go a safe distance away and watch to see, now that the fuse is lit, if this thing goes off or not. So he waits and he watches, but as time goes on, it becomes apparent that nothing's happening. Actually, something does happen. But what happens is not what Jonah expects. Jonah wanted God to deal with the Ninevites, but instead, God deals with Jonah. He deals with him. Just as God had formerly used a storm to discipline Jonah and used a fish to rescue Jonah, now God appoints. We see this word appoint three times in the text. He appoints first a plant, then a worm, and then this intense wind and this heat to bring Jonah to the point of talking. Jonah says, I'm not going to answer your question. And God goes, yeah, you will. Just wait, wait a few minutes. We'll get there. The repetition of this word appoint that you see three times in the text highlights the sovereignty of God. God knows exactly what he's doing. And he has every molecule and creation at his disposal to accomplish his will. He is the master chess player who is bringing Jonah to the right place where they can have the conversation God wants to have. He's working on Jonah. He's working on him. And appointing the plant, God is showing him mercy. Jonah received comfort. This plant grew up overnight. Jonah probably built a booth somewhat like they did during the Feast of Booths. But in the hot weather, a plant that's disconnected, whether it was leaves or palm branches or whatever, that would have withered and it would not have given shade after a period of time in the heat. But this living plant grows up over his booth and gives him shade and he is comforted by it and he's appreciative of it. And that's God's mercy on Jonah. It shows that God can give mercy even to people who don't deserve it. Even to a prophet who's throwing a fit, God can show compassion. But... He also appoints the worm to illustrate his judgment. If at any time God has given life, he can also take it away. 
And if at any time God desires to bring adversity and discipline upon his servants, he has every right to do so. God can save and God can judge. He can display his mercy or he can display his wrath. So God's showing wisdom in bringing Jonah where he wants him, also displaying his mercy and his sovereignty, creating a situation that will show Jonah not only his character, but also the error of Jonah's ways. And after this one comfort that Jonah feels like he has in life is gone, when this plant dies, Jonah reaches the break point emotionally. And again, he asks God to take his life. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. And then God asks his question again in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? God won't let it go, will he? He's still after Jonah, still working on his heart, still questioning whether he is in the right to harbor these emotions and these attitudes. And this time, Jonah takes the bait. He answers the question and defends his anger. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you do not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Now God has Jonah where he wants him. Okay, Jonah's ready to talk. This conversation now can happen. And what Jonah does is lay his heart bare. He expresses his frustration and his anger. He says, yes, I have a right to be angry. From Jonah's perspective, God is delivering people that he should destroy and destroying what he should have delivered. He says, you should have smoked Nineveh and you should have spared the plant. Jonah has a problem with divine sovereignty in the exercise of both mercy and judgment. And again, Jonah says, if this is how God is, if this is how the world works, then I'd rather not be in it. I would rather die. He doesn't see any point in going on. So though he had at one point, back in chapter 2, called out for God to spare his life and save him, now again he's asking God to take his life. So God has brought him finally to where he wants him. He's gotten Jonah to be honest. He's gotten Jonah to be honest about what's going on in his heart, to get the real issues out on the table so that God can challenge those sinful attitudes and assumptions that lay deep within his soul. This is God's wisdom at work. And he does the same kinds of things in your life and mine. God uses circumstances, our experiences, what may seem random or what might seem just the natural course of events. He sovereignly ordains all these things to bring about his will. And his will is to conform you to the image of his son. And nothing's wasted. God's will is to purify our hearts, to expose and confront our sin, and to bring about the change that he desires. He uses disappointments. He uses circumstances. And then finally, in verse 9 through 11, God uses his word to confront and correct our hearts. So he's gotten the issue out to the surface. He's gotten Jonah to be honest about it. And then with God's final barrage of words to Jonah, in verses 10 through 11, more rhetorical questions. With the divine word, he confronts and corrects Jonah's heart. Verse 10, the Lord said, you pity the plant. You have compassion. You care about the well-being of this inanimate object. A plant, Jonah, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. 
which came into being in a night and perished in a night. It says, Jonah, this plant is not that significant. But what about a whole city full of people? Verse 11, should not I pity Nineveh? What's the contrast here? Jonah didn't labor for the plant or make it grow, but God did create these people. They do bear his image. God has been pursuing them and bringing about their redemption through a variety of means. God has labored in this city. I think God has a right to care about it. God says there are more than 120,000 persons in this city who don't know their right hand from their left. And whether this refers to people who don't have a moral clue or whether it refers to children, either way, God's saying there's a lot of people in this city and they have great value to me. And God even points out that the cattle, even the livestock, are more important than the plant. The rhetorical questions show us that it's not God who's being inconsistent. It's not God whose values are messed up. It's not God whose priorities are out of whack. It's Jonah who has the problem. And as always, God gets the final word. Jonah had taken issue with God's lack of anger. But here, God takes issue with Jonah's anger. Jonah's anger reveals that he has a hypocritical view of mercy. He was happy to receive mercy, very happy to receive it. Remember chapter 2. He praised God for his mercy. He called out for it while he was sinking deep into the ocean. He was happy about the fish, and he was happy about the plants. He delighted in this plant. He was grateful for it. He was exceedingly glad, verse 6 says, when God showed him mercy by bringing up this plant. But Jonah is unhappy about mercy on Nineveh. So the mercy he had praised God for in chapter 2, he despises in chapter 4. I mean, Jonah is coming off here like the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18. Do you remember that parable Jesus told? There was the man who went before the ruler and had a debt he could never pay, and he was forgiven. And then he goes out and puts his hands on a fellow servant who would not, for, who would not pay back a much smaller debt. That's what Jonah is coming off like. He's more than happy to receive mercy, but is unhappy with others getting any. He's a little bit like that older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember him? The prodigal son goes away, wastes his father's inheritance, and then returns. And the father welcomes him on the road with open arms, puts his robe on him, puts his ring on him, and kills the fatted calf. And the older brother stands there with folded arms and says, I don't agree that you're treating him this way. Anytime you find yourself identifying with the ungrateful servant and the older brother of the prodigal son, you're not in good company. That's not where you want to be. But that's exactly where Jonah is. He has a hypocritical view of mercy. Not only had Jonah personally experienced God's mercy time and time again, but even the nation Israel had experienced this same kind of mercy. If you go back to Exodus chapter 32, after the incident with the golden calf, God had told Moses to stand back because he was going to wipe out the nation Israel, destroy them all, and start off fresh with Moses. He said, these people are stubborn and stiff-necked. Stand clear, because I'm done with them, and I'll start over with you and rebuild. But Moses had prayed, and God had relented of his anger. The same language we find here in reference to Nineveh. Jonah knew that story by heart, and he loved it. He was thankful for it, but he hated the fact that God would do for Nineveh the same thing he had once done for Israel. And this is hypocrisy. He had a hypocritical view of mercy. It also revealed a disproportionate compassion that Jonah wanted destruction on a city but was unhappy about the destruction of a measly plant. It shows that his valuations are warped. They're warped. But perhaps most fundamentally, 
Jonah's anger revealed a resistance to the sovereignty of God. Jonah ultimately is really questioning God's right to be God. Questioning whether God has the right to act as God. As the one who has complete sovereignty, whose will is perfect, and who pursues his glory in all things. It's not that Jonah doesn't like mercy. He does like mercy. It's that he thinks he knows who should get mercy and who shouldn't. But that is God's job description, not ours. Romans chapter 9, verse 15, the Apostle Paul quotes, and he says that God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. At the end of the day, it is God's prerogative to bestow mercy or to pour out judgment simply because it pleases him. And we are in no place to protest. The pagan king Nebuchadnezzar got this. He understood it. In Daniel 4.35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar got it. He says, you can't stop God from doing what he determines to do. You can't stop his hand. And you are in no position to question him and say, God, what are you doing? I don't think you're doing this right. Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled, and he got it. The reality is this. God has the sovereign right to extend mercy or to judge. He has the right to give life and also to take it away. He has the authority to raise up, and he has the authority to cast down. And we are not in any position to protest. We are not right to think that we know better than God how God should act. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. It is his to bestow when and where upon whom he chooses. And here's God's purpose. His purpose is to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and kingdom and nation through the blood of his son. His purpose is to magnify his mercy in the redemption of sinners. He has many sheep that are not from the fold of Israel. Israel is meant to be a blessing to the nations. But rather than embracing his part in God's mission, Jonah was resisting the very purposes of God. Let me ask you a very serious question. Do you find in Jonah a reflection of yourself? Do you find yourself at times convinced that God's judgment is unjust or that his mercy is misplaced? Do you find yourself at times entertaining thoughts that maybe our purposes are better than his purposes? When that happens, we are falling into the blasphemous error of wanting to remake God in our image rather than recognizing that it is we who must change and be transformed into the image of Christ. You know, there's another famous Old Testament character who got into a debate with God. We've mentioned Job already. Job, too, protested and questioned God. And God asked him some devastating questions. And finally, at the end of that interchange, Job responded, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what God had asked Jonah. Jonah remembers that piercing question. He says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful to me that I did not know. 
Again, he quotes God's words to him. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Jonas reflects, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the response that God's questions should bring about in our hearts. You are God, I am not. We humble ourselves. We magnify the Lord. So after God's questioning of Jonah, how does Jonah respond? Well, if you turn the page, that's the end of Jonah. After verse 11, the credits roll. The end. We don't know exactly how he responds. This question where God says, should I not pity Nineveh? This question is sort of left hanging. The book itself ends with a question mark. And I believe that it does so in order that the questions God asked to Jonah would land also on us and not just on this wayward prophet. The implication of God's question is this. If God cares about the salvation of the nations, so should we. If God delights in mercy, so should we. If God determines to save those who are far off, we ought to praise him rather than protest. And when God determines to send judgment instead of mercy... We must find no fault. To do anything less communicates that we think we know better than God. And I don't think any of us wants to stand up and say that. I think the question that haunted Jonah must haunt our hearts as well. Cannot God do as he deems right in his wisdom? I do think, however, that Jonah did learn this lesson. I believe Jonah changed because I think Jonah wrote this book. And I think he wrote it down Because Jonah wanted us to learn the same lessons. To see that God always gets his man. God always gets his city. He always accomplishes what he wants. And we are able to learn from Jonah's experience. To benefit from his mistakes. To learn that God's sovereign authority must be obeyed. If God tells us to go, we say, yes, Lord. And also to learn that God's sovereign will is to be embraced wholeheartedly. That what God calls good, we must call good. That what God calls right, we must call right. That what God desires, we should desire. What God delights in, we should delight in. I think Jonah wants us to also learn that external obedience, just doing what God demands on the outside, is not enough. He wants us to learn That God desires our hearts to be changed so that our heart reflects his heart. Because then obedience becomes a joy. And then submission becomes a privilege. If I can just speak to some of you this morning, there may be some of you here today who know exactly how to fit in in the church. You know what's expected in terms of behavior and, you know, the things to say and not to say, what to do and what not to do. Maybe even you have correct doctrine. Maybe you even have a well-formed and impressive theology. But friends, if your heart is not aligned with God's heart, as it is revealed to us in his word, if inwardly you oppose him, while outwardly you go with the flow, then you are a hypocrite. God is not impressed with merely external obedience. That's why he wouldn't give up on Job. He's not satisfied with a walk that has no worship. He is not pleased by a loveless orthodoxy. He wants more than a Christianity that only goes skin deep. And the reality is you may fool the people around you. 
but God sees your heart. He sees you. He sees right to the center of your soul. He sees the issues and the sins and the problems that maybe you don't even see yourself. As God says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. God's perception of our hearts pierces all the way to the bottom. God sees your character. He measures your integrity. He evaluates the deepest motives and attitudes of your heart. And his aim, if you belong to him, is to prune you and to purify you and to cut away the things that don't look like Jesus and to use the disappointments and the experiences and the ups and downs in life, to use the truth of his word to bring about real change, to bring about real growth so that you become more and more and more like Jesus. Take this as a sign of love. If you experience some of those painful circumstances, that those whom God loves, he also disciplines. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. In light of Jonah's story, I think we need to examine our hearts this morning and ask, God, what is it in my heart that you want to change? You need to ask yourself if there's a pattern of external submission that perhaps lacks the wholehearted affirmation of God's word and God's will. Is there something for you that ought to draw out worship, but instead you've responded to with resentment or protest or disapproval? You know, Jonah took issue with God's mercy. I think many today flip the coin over and take issue with God's judgment. Jonah was dissatisfied with God's sovereign choice of whom he would save. Many today register the same complaint. Perhaps it's God's sovereign plan for your life. Perhaps it's your circumstances that you're unhappy with. Perhaps it's the tension between what the Bible says about gender roles or how the family is structured or the church and what the culture says is good. But when we question God's goodness, when we question God's wisdom, we are acting as if we know better than God how he should rule and order his world. So we all have a decision to make. What will it be? Will it be protest or praise coming from you? Will you choose to accuse God, or will you affirm his goodness and his wisdom? Will you resist his will, whether outwardly or simply with your attitudes and emotions, or will you choose to reflect his character? The choice is yours, how you will respond. And Jonah leaves us with this question hanging in the air, lingering so that we will be forced to come face to face with this God and ask if our hearts are in line with his. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and we have been granted the privilege of participation in his plan of bringing salvation to the nations through the preaching of the gospel. And friends, this is something that does require our obedience. But as God reaches the world through us, do not forget that he also insists on bringing about a world of change in us as well. This is God's sovereign will. This is his purpose. And it's a display of great mercy and patience that he would bear with us because you and I, like Jonah, often need a lot of work and a lot of questioning and a lot of circumstances before we finally get to the place where we need to be. Praise God he doesn't give up on us. Praise God he pursues us. Praise God that we can say what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians, that he who began a good work in us 
will continue to perform it until the day of Christ. May we bow down before him and receive his ongoing work in our hearts for his glory. Father, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for the marvelous displays of your power and your sovereignty as you hurl storms across the ocean, as you appoint fish and plants and worms and storms. We also praise you, God, for what you show us about your mercy and your patience with your people, how you put up with Jonah. You kept working on him. You didn't give up on him. You did not abandon him to his sin and his foolishness, but you pruned and purified his heart. Lord, we thank you for what we see about your mercy to Nineveh, that you are a God who responds to sinners with mercy. Lord, for those who are convicted this morning that their heart is not in line with yours, I ask that they would respond with real repentance, that they would humble themselves before you, that they would lay aside their emotional anger or frustration or resistance, whatever it is, to your will and to your ways that they would happily affirm your goodness and your wisdom and your sovereignty and find comfort in knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord. You have the power to save. You have the desire to save, and it is your right because it belongs to you to dispense this gift upon whom you choose. So, Lord, grant us humility, and I pray that you would bring about a world of change in us so that we would desire what you desire, so that we would be eager to see salvation spread to all the nations of the earth, that we'd be eager to share with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers, our fellow students, that you are a God who is just, who condemns sin, but also a God who has made a way of salvation, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, the Son of Man was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights and then rose again. That through Jesus, our sins can be atoned for. That by the blood of Christ, our sin of resisting God can be cleansed. It is only Jesus through you that we know we can receive this forgiveness and mercy. I pray that you would help us to lay hold of your grace this morning where we feel the conviction of sin. We pray, God, that you would use us as you used Jonah to spread the word about who you are, this great God, the one to whom belongs salvation. We pray that you would work in us and through us for your glory. Amen.